In this episode, we discuss digital transformation through digital twins. My guest on this episode is Dr. P.G. Madhavan. P.G. has deep expertise in data science and he has previously worked for companies such as TechOllution, NEC Corporation, GE Aviation, Microsoft, and Rockwell Automation, among many others. He's also worked as a university professor at the University of Michigan, Indiana University, and Waterloo University in the departments of electrical engineering and computer science, neurology, systems design, physiology, and biophysics. A quick thank you to our sponsors. This episode is made possible by our friends at HiveMQ, who are providers of an enterprise-grade edge and cloud-based MQTT broker. So please do check them out to help support this podcast. Welcome to the fourth generation podcast here on industry4odd.tv, which is a series of weekly interviews designed to help you learn industrial IoT from some of the world's leading practitioners. So if you're new here, please make sure to subscribe and click on the notification bell so that you never miss any of the interviews. If you find this conversation interesting, please review it with 5,000 Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify, and you can also connect with me on LinkedIn at Kudzai Mandi Teresa. Now, here's my interview with PG. Okay, so uh, Dr. PG, uh, I would like to welcome you to the show. Glad to be here. Uh, I know you have a broad but focused audience, so I'm delighted to address them on some of my pet uh, topics like IoT and digital twin. Thank you, Gursai. Thank you. So today I want to talk to you about digital transformation uh, through digital twins. Now, digital twins is, is not a new concept. Uh, it's been around for some time. Uh, however, we, we have seen renewed enthusiasm uh, in the last couple of years. And uh, yourself being someone who was involved in the early uh, digital twin projects, what, what makes you more enthusiastic about digital twins today than, than before? That's a very good question because early on back in 2000, when I was involved in developing probably the, the first large industrial IoT, there were you know small POCs and others before. Um, I learned the hard lessons and then I realized there are something missing. So if you have seen some of my articles, I have this picture where I show an IoT arc that's you know improving, but in the middle I have a kink. So uh, the story behind it is, is as follows. Right? Uh, let's start at the very beginning, turn of this century, 2000. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm at the Georgia Pacific uh, plant. Georgia Pacific is one of the large paper manufacturers in the U.S. So, you know, the paper, there are thousands of rollers where the paper is just, you know, sucked out from the pulp and made it in newsprint at the end, the big rollers. So uh, there are things that happen which before that time, maybe decades before that time, was basically breakdown maintenance. Something breaks down, the line goes down, uh, you got to go fix it. It is, in this case, probably only a few hours, you know, work lost and some cost associated. But in some of them, breakdown maintenance is huge. I remember a case where Nucor, I believe it is in Cleveland, it is, it is one of those, those days, new type of, you know, steel mills, you know, mini mills. 
So they make mostly sheet metal for the car body parts. Those days, car body parts were metal, not plastic like today. So they roll these steel uh, sheets, which are, I don't know, height of a house, and then it is kind of wound together, and there are dirt, dirt cranes that will take the finished product and you know, move it to the other end where they load in the truck. Talk about a breakdown maintenance. One of these big rolls of steel, as it was going, that binding broke. And you can imagine the, 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 the uh, force, the energy that is in that roll thing. It just exploded. It just you know, broke the big steel beams and posts like matchsticks. Oh, wow. So this is a case where they probably lost three months of work and you know, they have rebuilt the thing. So from breakdown maintenance, people realize not a very good thing. So they started going towards called preventive maintenance. So before things happen, so in the Georgia Pacific case, now they said, okay, we'll you know put grease in the joints every week, preventive. So it'll get lucky. Now then they realized, well, you can do better. You can do predictive maintenance. So if we knew when these things are going to or tending to fail, let's only apply the grease at that time. So you're saving some grease and you know it seems to work. Now, so far, so good. This is where now I think the kink happens. So now if you want to go beyond that and say, okay, now should we just depend on these predictions of when the bearing needs to be, you know, made less friction, uh, made friction free? Or is there something other than that that we can do to this process change so that there is more paper produced with less waste and of higher quality. The IoT digital twin systems that can address that is what we call prescriptive analytics. We have not gotten the prescriptive maintenance, for example. So the objective is not really maintenance. It is really taking it beyond and then improving the functioning of, of a plant. So it's, it's like a long story, but I believe we are at the threshold of being able to do prescriptive maintenance and analytics, which goes beyond just maintenance and affects performance of the plant. So um, I think it is a very exciting time. Uh, one of the keys in doing that is something called causal digital twin, which hopefully we will touch upon. It's a really hard topic, but important. Um, and then, you know, so, so far, We've been treating symptoms, as I call it. Now we are at the threshold of addressing causes. That's why I'm so excited. Now, uh, uh, most advanced analytics use cases, they consider predictive maintenance to be uh, a low-hanging fruit, and, and hence we, we, we see it being applied and being mentioned everywhere, uh, which, which kind of gives uh, uh, it, it the notion that it's, it's like a, a killer app for IIoT. And, and you strongly disagree with that notion. Uh, could you explain to us why predictive maintenance is not the killer app for IIoT? You know, low-hanging fruits usually are not killer apps. They are the way to entree into a, a field and get your whereabouts. Then you have to expand. And let me give you another story, uh, again, from say this paper plant, right? 
So before uh, we deployed our solution in 2000, what people would do is, you know, walk around with a handheld computer type of thing, specialized equipment, not an iPad or anything. There was no iPad then. And uh, there will be a tether, a wire with some sort of various sensors, temperature sensor, pressure sensor, vibration sensor. They'll go and stick it in each of these rolling elements and collect all this data, go to the office at the end of the day and dump all the data into a kind of a spreadsheet. So what we did was we came and answered, look, this is a good thing. You know, you're doing something towards preventive and perhaps predictive maintenance, mostly preventive. But instead of just walking around, it's a very um, labor intensive and unreliable. You know, to be, just to be very frank, some of these people who walk around and do this, don't do it very diligently. You know, you, if you have to do good analytics, the measuring point should be the same every day, every time. They don't measure every day, maybe once a month. It does the same point, and they don't bother to do it. So you're getting really mixed up data, very hard to make any sense of. So we said, we'll attach these things, then bring that data through a wired thing to what we used to call CPE, uh, customer premises equipment. Today, we'll call it edge computing. So that edge computing has wireless connectivity to the office. And so it goes into the PC and then it comes to our servers. And there was no cloud at that time. And we would do this analysis. So, um, and we also introduced a concept of a visual digital twin. So that instead of just looking at these spreadsheets, I said, it'll be much better. Uh, and lots of the customers even kind of push back and say, ah, we don't need it. We know how to do these spreadsheets. I said, no, no, I'll show you something better. So we would take uh, a digital camera pictures of the plant floor and they can flip it on the computer screen and wherever we are, there are measuring points, it'll either show green, yellow or red. And then, then they click on it, they can actually see the spreadsheet so they can look at history. Then they click on it one more time, you can actually see the real time vibration data, temperature data coming through, including the spectrum. So uh, it became actually a huge selling point. So the first time we, we deployed it and they were planned, folks were excited, the engineers were excited, uh, the executives were excited, everybody's doing great. Now, you know, six months later, a year later, when I visit them, you know, the level of excitement has kind of subsided a little bit. So, so the question was, you know, what happened? You know, so they were saying, you know, we spent X million dollars on this. So the CFO was asking, so what happened? Did you increase production? Did you, you know, better qualities? Did something happen? You see, it, this is where now finance has to come in. So the way financial statements work in companies are the top line items and the bottom line items. Top line items is the, the gross margin revenue. So gross revenue, cogs, cost of goods sold, and the difference is the gross margin or the gross profit. That's what people see immediately. Now, below the line, there is a lot of crap. You know, there is interest and payment and this and operations and blah, blah, blah. Maintenance happens to be in the, under the line. So two problems. One, executives almost miss it. Number two, when you put these things in, how do you show that you saved some money? So here is the problem. So let's say because of this, um, 
the this bearing didn't break. Now, somebody smart guy like in the, <laughs> the customer's team would ask, well, how can you attribute it to your classic attribution problem like in advertising? How can you attribute it to your software? Maybe it would never have failed. Now you can say, oh, okay, now we, let's do an experiment. We'll compare this plan to another plan. Then they will say, oh, plans are so different. And obviously in industry, you cannot do like control trials. You cannot do statistical comparison. You can't even do pre-post. So let's look at last year, what was the expense this year? So many things have changed. The uh, material, raw material going has changed, plant laborers have changed, all those things. So it's just impossible to convince them that there is actually, there is no perceptible improvement in the top line. There is nothing really visible under the line and there is nothing we can convince them that we have actually saved $10 million. It is just uh, back and forth with no real resolution. So the excitement of the, the CXOs, CFOs, and others, you know, start diminishing and that pervades through the company. Now they're less excited. So the plant uh, superintendent is less excited and the foreman is less excited. So that's why I say it's, it's, a, it's almost like a must have. It is like brushing the teeth in the morning. You have to have predictive maintenance. You cannot do breakdown. So that's a given, but anything more than that, and people are willing to put money into that at a certain level. But any other investment, you got to show either increase in revenue because you're producing more or reduction in costs, you're less cost, less raw material, or the quality is better so you can charge higher for the same thing so that your gross margins goes. That is the killer up. And that to me will happen only when we get to that other side of the curve that I talked about as uh, prescriptive uh, analytics. So I intend for us to, to dive deep into the uh, application of, of digital twins in industry. Um, yeah. But before we do that, I would like us to set the foundation. Uh, maybe if you could uh, uh, describe to us what is the central purpose of a digital twin? So, you know, there are so many associations and consortia who are involved in this and they have their definitions and uh, many of them has to do with, you know, somehow reflecting the physical twin various details onto a software entities that you can see. I think that's too narrow. <clears throat> so my preferred, and I try to zoom out, I look at it from a value perspective. To me, what a digital twin does is take local information from wherever, bring it all into a, into a global picture, integrate that picture, not just you know, show local pictures, but integrate them. How do they all work together? And then based on that, you say, ha, ah, do these local actions so that we can achieve a global business goal. Because business goals are global, it's not, Local. Let me give you an example. This is too fuzzy. Uh, smart city example. Let us say the local measurements are video analytics camera at each of the junctions, you know, where there is traffic signals, right? So that is the local information. So this all bubbles up to our smart city digital twin. Now, if you have just all these things, you can show 
on a map, you know, there is delay here, so it's red, you know, it's flowing smoothly, it's green. Okay, great. But we have to integrate something. And that is where the real value is. So if we can then say, okay, if we change dynamically the time that this intersection stays red and this intersection stays green, this flow would get better. Now, what are you doing? You're integrating the information to a higher business goal. In this case, smoother traffic flow. People feeling happier because they can get to work easier. There is less frustration. Those are fantastic you know, business goals because it'll translate into something good. So now from that global picture, then you say local action. You send down information to control those lights, you know, delay this, do this, do that. To me, anything, everything that you see today in Digital Twin can be mapped to this framework that I mentioned. Take local information, integrate the global picture. From there, find the global business advantage and prescribe local actions. That loop is to me what Digital Twin is. So to do that, there's all kinds of, you know, you have to have all that IoT connectivity and, you know, local or WAN connectivity, and we have to have the software platforms, you have to have the security. So all of that, that is getting the stuff. Then you have to have a stack where you are storing past, you know, instances and the current instances, you're looking at differences. So all of that, so whole software stack, all of those things are uh, the, the details that are important. Uh, I actually have a blog diagram where I kind of put it in like two or three pieces. And you know, I talk about it as, you know, the overall, the way to realize this broad picture that I kind of painted is through, a, you know, get the data and condition the data. That's one piece and we know how to do it now very easily. Then I talk about it as a condition or thresholding or detecting section, then a visualizing section, and then a important middle section, which I call root cause or what if analysis section. That's where the business, global business goals gets translated into local actions. And then this is fed back. So this is to me what Digital Twin is uh, a little fuzzy, but that is a good level to define Digital Twin because I see it as a framework for a variety of things, including digital transformation, which is the big buzzword these days. So it's in, if you generalize like this, it's broadly applicable. And in specific cases, we know the block diagrams and the stack. So, I mean, if, as you have uh, rightly pointed out, uh, that idea of bringing information up to, 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 to paint a global picture involves uh, bringing together a number of digital technologies. And, and so what do you see as being the biggest challenge in integrating these different digital technologies uh, to, to realize the digital twin? Actually, you know, there is a very pragmatic way to approach this. Uh, I'm sure every major hyperscaler has a similar kind of a progression chart, but I remember seeing AWS has a four-stage digital twin thing. They call it L1, L2, L3, L4. So when you first get into this, you don't have to have all of these things and what if analysis and all that stuff. You can do step-by-step. Step. L1 is just collecting the data and displaying it in the dashboard, something very simple. The next is 
uh, I don't remember all the levels what they do, but it's increasing sophistication. So L2 is probably they do some automatic thresholding. If it is vibration coming, ah, if it is exceeds something, set off an alarm or send a push notification to somebody on the plant floor, blah, blah, blah. So that is kind of L2. The L3, L4 is where that, what I just described, that big picture, bring it to the global think about business uh, objectives, and then do that, that's for. So there is no reason to do L4 first. You can do talk with L1, simple technologies today, wireless is no, no issue. There are so many, um, LoRaN, uh, NB-IoT, uh, LTE, there's so many options available. Sensors are still a problem, especially if it is battery operated. Those technologies are also kind of, kind of improving. Now, bringing once the data comes, there are just uh, AWS, Azure, uh, Google, not so much they're exiting, but um, there are so many uh, other proprietary and smaller um, IoT platforms that can get this data uh, in and massage it and show it in nice digital twin uh, or dashboards. I still have a little bit of a, you know, pet peeve about the dashboards. Dashboards today, typically just show a uh, dial with some this thing here and a bar chart here, blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I would any day uh, talk, recommend the digital twin I created way back when, remember I was talking to you about, you go take digital picture of the plant floor. So it's very human, that user interaction and people just loved it, you know, it was so cool. So you see the picture, if something there, you can go down and see. So I call it a hierarchical visual digital twin. So I wish instead of just dashboards, it's the easy thing to do, you know, because uh, you just feed it, there are CMS and other things available, you can just put it in and you see this picture. But if you can do it in a more human way, visual, then you can drill down technical, drill down even more. Uh, that would make a wonderful, uh, not dashboard, but visualization. Now, in future, I suppose it is AR, VR, XR. So that is probably where there is still some, some challenges. And of course, the middle part, the root cause analysis part is not addressed. I don't want to say at all, but very rarely. So that is where the technical challenge is. But there are glimmers of hope. There are tools available. It's not prevalent, uh, but that I'm sure will come in the next six to months to a year. So now what I would like us to, to, to do is to hone in on the uh, industrial IoT or IoT aspect of it. Uh, can you break down for us what, what, what the role of, of IoT is in, in, in digital twins? Um, again, you know, sometimes stories are the best ways to explain what to do. So I had spent some time at GE Aviation, and that's a place where, you know, GE Aviation have like 40,000 jet engines in the air every day, you know, or at any instant of time, I think. So, you know, they have the production part, the operations part, the service part, and the, so all these things. So GE Aviation, I'm not you know, uh, divulging any, any proprietary information here, any major corporation is doing this, but during production, every, I mean, there is millions of parts that go into a GNX or one of those big engines that you see. And these are all tagged, documented, 
Uh, I don't know whether there are RFIDs, et cetera. Those are specific internal details, so I won't get into it. But these are all captured. And then um, when they're all put together and then it's hung on a wing somewhere, those things are tracked. And when they're in the air, it's continuous data being sent. So there are sensors in the jet engines for all kinds of things, there are tons of them. I used to work on a specific one, a very difficult uh, high temperature sensor right inside the hot path of the jet engine called T3. So all this data in olden days, they would just you know, have little snapshots they collect and then download it, I think maybe through satellite. But now there is something called COD, which is continuous data. So continuously measure this. And generally it is downloaded when the plane comes to the uh, jetway and there is a hotspot where they just dump all the data very quickly and it comes to aviation. So they have, you know, like a NASA control room kind of various things, um, I believe. But here is a, a you know step by step way where you capture all of this, and when all these these information along the whole path is captured, and the engines go through these you know maintenance and rebuild and cycles, then they go back on again. So all that is captured, and that's called the digital thread. So digital twin, in my opinion, includes the digital thread. So if you want to look at an engine with a certain problem, you can click on it and see. Then you can go down and see the digital thread. Who built that sensor? Then when was it installed? When was there any repair or, or, or replacement? So they see the whole digital thread. So this is typically how um, this digital twins, to me, come into play in an industrial IoT use case. Okay. So. Um... Now, moving on to uh, the machine learning aspect uh, of it, uh, can you tell us about the machine learning methods that are used in digital twins? Yeah, this is my pet topic. Uh, uh, in the last oh, so many years, decade or so more, I've mostly focused on, on machine learning of various aspects. When it comes to industrial IoT and applications that you and I care about and probably the audience care about. I'm in Andrew Ng's camp. Most of you will know Andrew Ng. He's the uh, uh, machine learning professor from Stanford. And then he has gone on to do things at Google and Baidu and all of that. But his uh, Coursera course on machine learning, I've done it. I'm sure you've done it. And majority of these people have done it. So recently, you know, there is always this buzz about deep learning and you know identifying cat versus dog and natural language processing and all that you know those are big data so andrew Ang is for about small data so he has a whole uh, investment fund and his own uh, advisory activity is all about applications not in consumer space well that's that's nice that's important you know it's good to know a cat from a dog and those are all great but he, he wants to apply it to where there is you know i assume wealth is created things are manufactured real stuff happens and he was saying in those cases you don't have billions and billions of data when you need to do train a natural language processing system the corpus of data is billions of words and pages of 
all kinds of things from wiki and UN transcriptions and in every, every possible language, right? We don't get that kind of data. When, when I was doing the jet engine work for the temperature sensor, it hardly fails. Otherwise, these planes will be falling out, right? So the, the, the amount of data, especially abnormal data, is tiny. And in, in, in comparison to the general or the consumer application, like NLP and what you hear for image processing and so on on the consumer side, the amount of data is tiny. So that's what it means by small data. So in these small data cases, what are the machine learning tools that work? Actually deep learning, I haven't seen any significant application other than maybe one in some inspection of the, the blades of a jet engine fan. You know, I take a picture to see if there is any, not cracks, but even a little tiny thing when the plane lands, you know, I can quickly do that while it's staying in the jet way that you can see if there is a problem or not perhaps. But they're very, very small. So the machine learning te techniques that apply in our domain is usually just the uh, regression and classification, the main, the good old stuff, right? And multi-layer perceptron neural networks. So not deep, but maybe two, three layers, maybe whatever width it is. And uh, uh, one thing that uh, I'm, hoping to see will happen is what is called SVAR. You know, uh, it is um, structural vector autoregressive processing. Because that is, when you think about uh, almost all IIoT, industrial IoT applications, what you're doing is sensing from many, maybe thousands of points, sensors, all the data comes. Now, if you treat each data as something separate, you only get, I call it like looking through straws. You know, you're just seeing one thing because they are related. If you have temperature, pressure, vibration from one part of the machine, they all are related. They have connections. We are not seeing it if you just process separately. Now, all the connected things in the paper processing chain, they are all interlinked. And we don't see that if you process. So if you have to put them together to analyze, not if we have to, and the, there's techniques available in advanced, uh, you know, machine learning and stochastic process things. It may be mathematically hard, but the algorithms are readily available. It's uh, maybe already available in Python, but it's it's in so many open source. I have open source many of them myself, because that will lead to analyzing causality, these relationship between these various single channels of data that you collect. That's when you go to the next step. If you think of that uh, smart city example traffic, you know, all those lights, the let's say video analytics that come from each are not independent piece of information. They're all interlinked because the traffic is being you know, held up by each other. They are affected by each other. So they all need to be uh, you know, combined. And that has not, not happened. And I think uh, that is the next big machine learning activity. So uh, I have a little tri triangular pyramid that I use. Uh, I say simple thresholding kind of thing is good for, you know, just knowing condition monitoring. If you use some small, simple statistical methods, like 
regression machine, uh, multi-layer perceptron neural network and so on, it'll be good for predictive maintenance kind of thing. But then you need a causal analysis or causal machine learning, and that is becoming a topic now. That is what you need for this high value prescriptive analytics where you can do root cause analysis and uh, you know, what if analysis, counterfactual as we call it, analysis. So that is yet to come, but it's imminent. Maybe let's let's focus on uh, the application of root cause uh, analytics method uh, in digital twins. Uh, can you uh, maybe expand on that, on, on exactly why we need it and how it works? See, this is a classic difference where when we don't go to the plant floor and actually see how things are done, you know, uh, how our mindsets sometimes are not aligned. In that 2000s, when I'm on the plant floor at Newcore or Georgia Pacific, let's say, you know, some breakdown happens, you know, something seized up, let's say, uh, a bearing. And that thing gets replaced. But that's not the end of the story. The vibration specialist, the operator of that part of the machinery, they all get together and they do a root cause analysis. They will get together. And those days, we didn't have all these mathematical techniques. They may set something up in the lab or something and run it to failure and or put loads on it in certain ways, or the shaft is slightly misaligned, then they can see what is happening. The, you know why? Because you don't want to keep doing, treat the same symptoms again and again and again. You want to solve it so that you don't have to do this again, predictive maintenance or preventive maintenance again. So root cause analysis is an integral part of fault detection. When fault is detected with your software, that's not the end of the story. You have to have that next step so that you're not treating the symptoms again and again. So you have to solve that. And that is not, again, being done. And for that, the real fundamental need, so this is <laughs> the whole underpinning of you know, causality. You know, some people would say, Causality is the most important relationship in the universe. That's probably big, but cause and effect. That's how the whole uh, Western scientific method is built. Our laws and you know, even social uh, interactions, it is all uh, predicated on this. There may be other better systems, we don't know, but that's what we have today. When something happens, something happens. So if it is in a, uh, law or criminal case, that action caused this uh, negative impact, then you are, you know, liable and, you know, you have committed something felony or something like that. So cost effect is so important to know. Without that, you can't uh, find the root cause because you have to repeat that and solve the same problem again and again. So root cause analysis is simply a, a fundamental important thing. Now, again, this is not to say, uh, you know, people are not getting it. No, I see this as a natural progression of the field. We came from, like I said, breakdown maintenance to uh, preventive maintenance to predictive maintenance to prescriptive maintenance. It'll come, but we are looking at the, we are at the threshold of that next stage. And I believe uh, what I'm talking about is what's coming soon. It's imminent because people realize that you can't do all of it at one time 
especially for root cause analysis, the methodologies are actually quite, uh, specialized hard, but complex. You know, deep, deep learning was hard and this was hard, but now there is a, you know, you take a Keras or PyTorch or something and boom, put together, there is the result, it'll happen. There is. As you have explained uh, that this principle of causality uh, can be applied to different types of, of data. So can you speak to us about its application in industrial IoT data in particular? So what I just talked about, that root cause analysis, that's you know very clear, right? You know, you had to, whenever there is a failure, you got it. That should be the mindset. And the software should allow that. That's the first step. But there's another other step. So this is, if you think about if you're deploying this as a, you know, like a uh, software solution, digital twin, those uh, simple detecting false and predicting false, that's an ongoing continuous near real-time process. Root cause analysis obviously is when there is failure. So it's not continuous when something happens. So it's an event-driven activity. There is one which is even less often. That's what we call what-if analysis or counterfactual experiments. So this is probably when once a quarter, the, the powers that be get together and decide, is there anything we can do with the performance, the layout, the parameters of the process so we can improve this, this thing, right? So that becomes, uh, you know, for example, if uh, you, you want to answer a question like, okay, we uh, grease this joint every month, right? Now you'll get together and say, hmm, uh, what if we grease this joint every week? Would it perform better? Would the paper be nice and thinner? <laughs> Those kind of decisions. That is what if analysis. You, you don't know, but you have to think through and see what is what's you know going to happen. And in in causality literature, what if analysis is a good term for you and us, right? But the fancy term is called counterfactual analysis. Why that is is in this case, you know, you're not applying grease every week, right? So you're saying it's not factual. So it's counter to factual. What if we have done that? What would happen? So in some of my articles on causality, I talk about one of the big names, Marletto is her name, her book on this. She gives an example of counterfactual as, uh, would a kangaroo fall over if it had no tail? Now, mm -hmm. you're not allowed to perform experiments. <laughs> you're not allowed to go and cut the tail of 10 kangaroos, another 10 that's not cut, compare them. No, no, that's not allowed. So these are things that you can't do or in, in the industrial plant floor, there are so many things you cannot do for these kind of comparisons and know what is going on. Now, on the other hand, in some other fields, these kind of analysis can be done quite easily and is, is a must. One is in drug trials. So let's say, oh, a new thing that'll cure your headache. They do a, what's called a randomized control trial. So they would give to a blind group and another group, and even the people who administer the thing are blind. So there is double blind. And then, you know, so that is real cost effect. This pill is reducing the headache by this percent in this percent of the population. Great. You won't be able to do that in most industries because you're going to shut down a process here and see 
the other process and compare the two, you know, losing money and, you know, various things. So that is the uh, second big application of, so root cause analysis, whenever it's necessary, and on a frequent basis, uh, the, uh, the what if analysis or counterfactual analysis. To me, these two map beautifully into the general conversation about digital transformation we are all going through now. So it's not just industry, it's not just IoT. I believe that all the digital transformation that are going on today can be mapped into this, <clears throat> this uh, framework. If you, if you like, I can talk a little bit about that. That's one of my pet uh, areas these days. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so yeah, well, maybe now to focus on uh, the digital transformation uh, 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 in manufacturing, uh, uh, can you highlight for us uh, what you believe are the key steps to digitally transforming a, a manufacturing enterprise? So digital transformation is a kind of a buzzword, right? And it's hard uh, for people to really understand what it is so uh, I have a great interest in trying to reduce things to their essence, like saying digital twin, I said, you know, taking local information globally, integrate that information, and then performing local actions to achieve a global business goal. Boom, that's, so similarly, digital transformation, I have a, you know, larger you know, kind of picture. I think digital transformation is two things. One is continuous assessment of what you're doing and frequent improvement of what you're doing. So continuous assessment in an industrial case is very clear, just an industrial IoT example. You're monitoring all those data directly from sensors or from PLCs and SCADA and those things, that information is coming, you're monitoring it, you've automated all of that, great. So that's one part of you know, uh, digital transformation. The other part is frequent improvement. That is like Kaizen, you know, like the Japanese continuous improvement. That's the whole purpose of better observability. So that continuous monitoring gives you better observability of the process, the supply chain, where the customers are going with this, how happy they are. You're seeing all of that. That is the observability. Now, you got to do something with it. You can't just observe, right? So what is the next step? Next step is frequent improvement. It may not be continuous improvement because you can't change a process all the time. You can't change the supply chain that easily, right? So those are uh, at appropriate times, uh, again, maybe a quarterly assessment. But that thing, these two maps beautifully into what we talked in digital twin. Continuous assessment is like condition monitoring. We said that that's one block in digital twin. Frequent improvement is like this uh, root cause analysis and, and what if analysis we talked about. So to me, the two key functions of two key aspects of digital transformation, continuous assessment and frequent improvements map directly into condition monitoring and root cause or what if analysis of digital twins. So I think of whenever, so it's not even industrial, like I said, it could be the entire supply chain through production, through selling to um, servicing uh, is encompassed in this, this digital transformation uh, simplified definition. 
Uh, and I would I would apply and and some of the, the continuous monitoring it may not be like continuous sensor data like time series it could be transaction logs from a retail store it could be some other logs from IT now it could be different kind of but what is it is it, what is key is observability of everything that you're doing not once a month or once in six months that is what we used to do in olden days here continuously near real time or real time. So now having established that and, and maybe to sum it up, how then do you achieve manufacturing digital transformation through digital twins? Um, that's a, a kind of a broad concept and many bigger minds than I have weighed in on it. And one of the ones that I like is uh, Deloitte has put out a you know, thick, 50 page report on these things. Um, so where digital twin comes in, in manufacturing is really what we call industrial 4.0, OT and plus IT. There are many names. Deloitte uses smart factory and I like that. So digital twins changing the face of manufacturing is through a smart factory. So if I just read the few things, there are five things they point out about smart factory. It's connected, it's optimized, it's transparent, it's proactive, it's agile, these five things. So let's think about that, what digital twin will do for connected, of course, connected, yes, we know that. Optimized, this is where we are talking about, uh, uh, you know, this, this what if analysis, root cause analysis, and if it's together, that traffic flow, you're optimizing traffic flow, you're doing that. Transparent, don't know exactly what they mean. I mean, uh, connected is giving you the, maybe it is being able to visualize it the proper way. That is probably what they mean by transparent. Or in, uh, or in yeah, there are unknown parts of factory operations. That could be very dangerous because you make decisions based on what you see. So there shouldn't be any. So you should be monitoring everything, I suppose. Proactive, yeah, that we talked about. That is, to me, more than uh, predictive. Proactive is prescriptive. So you do both. You proactively do things to not only prevent the same things from bad things from happening, but also act on good things to happen in the future, like increased productivity and so And agile. So as long as you know this visibility, you can be agile about it. So it is digital twin with people on top is what a smart factory is, in my opinion. Uh, there is an open source project uh, called PyY that you've referenced in one of your articles, which is basically causality for machine learning. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about that? Because I find that interesting. Yeah, this is a recent development, uh, less than a month now. Um, I knew uh, Amazon AWS has been working on, on, on causality. I had talked to some of those folks, mostly in Germany, somewhere in, in your neighborhood, because uh, I, I think it's in Berlin, uh, the team. Um, and there is Azure team here in locally. I'm, I'm in Seattle, Redmond area. Uh, but they were working independently. And this is probably like what in the, uh, during my earlier research days, 
there is uh, some effort which is sometimes what I remember is what was driven by the government. Uh, they call competitors can work together on pre-competitive technologies. So the idea is, so mine was actually, uh, when I was at Michigan, so this is, so Ford and GM and Chrysler, and they can work on some, say, ABS, uh, automatic braking system before it happened. They could work together because otherwise antitrust, they cannot collude and work together. So pre-competitive, they can work together. So this reminds me of, PyY reminds me of some of that pre-competitive, this thing, which means it is pre-competitive. It's early. It's not, you know, ABS. It's not deployed yet. So they had their own internal works, and it looks like, they, what this tells me without them actually saying it is that they think of it as a pre-competitive area. There is still work to be done. There isn't a castle uh, digital twin in either AWS IoT solutions or in the Azure IoT solution set as far as I know. But this is a great start. Now, one thing I should warn is not all of them are really suitable for IoT. So in causality, there is like this two, almost like two different branches. So one branch is what is very well known and that is popularized by the work of a, a very important person named Judea Pearl. Judea Pearl is people consider it's the father of uh, causality, has done significant work and his line of work. They are what you would call uh, control trials, it is experimental. So his work is mostly, to think of uh, yeah, drug trials that I talked about. So this is an experiment, you can control all these things, then you can find cause effect, right? Very important. And similar things can be done sometimes in social experiments. So if you increase the taxes on cigarettes, will the cigarette tax uh, consumption go down? It sounds like it, but you can perform an a cause effect. Is, is this causing it or is it something else causing it, et cetera? So that's a whole experimental driven thing. In IoT, as we said, industrial IoT especially, we hardly get a chance to perform experiments in a real production floor or, or something else. So we had to work with observational studies. So it's like this IoT da data that came. From that, you have to say, oh, instead of uh, putting grease here once a month, if I put once a week, would the product quality be better. I can't go back and do that experiment many times, right? In this case, maybe, but in general, you can think of other examples where you cannot do that. But from that observational data, can you find out what is causing what? Is this effect of this lower friction improving the paper quality? Right? That is the cost effect that you want to find. So that is a very different type of methodology. And this side of that methodology is what is applicable to IoT. Now, PyY is also, uh, what I have seen is there, if not everything, most is on that experimental genetic world type of things. Uh, so it has lots of uses in AI, you know, in, in customer satisfaction and customer churn prediction, and you know, the standard marketing research and stuff. And their data is, is actually different to in those things, we call it their panel data. So each row are independent. I won't go into the technical details, but on the IoT side, each row is so-called autocorrelated and you can't use the same techniques. Fortunately, 
for the IoT stuff, uh, this method based on um, SVAR, so structural vector autoregressive methods. Uh, it's a work uh, you know, of, uh, what's his name? Shohei Shimizu in Japan and Hivernan, Apo Hivernan in Finland, uh, done some excellent work in the turn of the century, 2005 to 2010. And again, theirs is not, you know, uh, focused on IoT. So in the last year and a half, I've been taking their work and improving it for, or turning it to be directly suitable, adding some stuff called cabin filtering and so on into uh, IoT applications. And that software uh, that is available. I should think of maybe contributing my, my code to PyY so people can use it. Or there may be other places. If you have some ideas, you know, I would, I would love, I'd love to hear it. So, so the basic point is this: the there is one class of uh, uh, causality studies, Jeremiah type. Uh, so those are randomized control trial, or more familiar to all of us would be A/B testing. A/B testing yeah. is basically that. So that is again test experimental. And the other part is observational. You can't go back and do any intervention. With what you got, you got to do the best you can. So that is what uh, you know. My excitement is on this side. Uh, I hope I, I, I hope I can add my stuff to them. I, I need to get, engage them more. Or you can always write to me, and I'll be happy to share my MATLAB code. Oh yeah, absolutely. You certainly be reaching out because that's a fascinating uh, uh, topic. I, I believe, and uh, I, would, I would believe also that. Uh, members of the audience will certainly be interested in finding out more about both PyY and what you've been working on. Yeah, that'd be great, that'd be great. Absolutely. Now, uh, to, to, to conclude, you, you've got a company uh, uh, called Systems Analytics Solutions. Uh, can you tell us more about the company and what services you offer? So, I'm an engineer, electrical engineer by training. So one of the bread and butter things of engineers is what's called systems theory. We think in terms of systems. Now that may be confusing to some people and you know this thing, but all my work is based on, so I look at even uh, everything we do in a systems form. Systems is uh, a little hard. You don't look at things on its own. We see everything as interconnected. And the interconnected activity, you know, back, back to that, remember we talked about local information comes, this global, this interconnected information from each of the intersections or many parts of the plant, you know, seeing it interconnected is very valuable in engineering solutions for them. So systems theory, I mean, our undergrads from even sophomore year learn systems thinking. There is by the junior and senior year, they do multiple courses that are sometimes not called systems theory, but they're all systems theory. Yeah. Communication is systems theory, signal processing is systems theory, control system is of course systems theory. So it's in the blood of engineers. So that's how I think about it. And I believe as a very powerful way, I think it's more powerful for engineering applications than even a physics-based thinking or math-based thinking. This is an integrated approach. So um, 
well, this may be a time to plug my book. So I believe that systems yeah, thinking is so important. So 2021, I wrote a book and just published it in 2002, January, Data Science for IoT Engineers. So this is all about approach, just even basic machine learning, things like <clears throat> regression trees and random forests and everything from system theory, but it goes beyond. The system theory, the big difference is this, machine learning, all the data models is some sort of regression data model. So it'd be a simple linear regression or multiple linear regression. That's it, that's the data model. What system theory does is takes it to one level higher called state-space data models. State-space data models, if you make certain simplification, it drops down to being a regression model. But state-space data models are therefore a superset, more powerful. It can incorporate the system relationships that I talked about. So then the second half of the book is all about using state-space data models for machine learning. And I think it is a very powerful methodology and very accessible. So engineers with undergraduate degree, when they uh, read this book or look at it from that approach or incorporate state-based data models, suddenly they're gonna get gain a lot plus understand things in a, in a gut level way. Um, so again, I'm not pitching this, but saying this is what we should do. So as a company, uh, this is really more of a technical advisory. So people who need advisory in digital twins, digital transformation, our machine learning from a systems point of view, uh, I'm there to help them. Oh, nice. Yeah, well, certainly as far as the book is concerned, we'll, we'll, we'll certainly be providing a link to, 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 to that book in the description below, because I'm sure, uh, like, like myself, many other uh, uh, engineers watching it would, would certainly be interested in reading the book. And I'll, I'm certainly going to read the book and probably I'll have to uh, call you back onto the podcast uh, year to discuss uh, more about the book once I've uh, got some deep knowledge uh, behind the, the, the contents of the book. I, I didn't know could say that you're an engineer. If you are, you would love it. It's, you know, we, we think differently engineers and yeah. this is, and nobody writes machine learning books from engineers perspective, usually written by physicists or mathematics or computer science they don't learn system theory the way we do. And uh, it's really, and to me, it's the best framework to think about machine learning. Awesome, that's fascinating. So Dr. PG, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you so much for coming on to share your insights with us. It's a, it's a real pleasure to me to be on. I'm honored that you invited me. I hope uh, your podcast becomes supremely famous and <laughs> helpful to a lot of people. I uh, really enjoyed it and thank you very much. Thank you.